European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 44, Issue 31. Focus Issue, Heart Failure and Cardiomyopathies, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Late-Breaking Trials in Heart Failure. This focus issue on heart failure, or HF, and cardiomyopathies contains the fast-track clinical research article Conventional Heart Failure Therapy in Cardiac ATTR Amyloidosis by Adam Iorno and colleagues from the University College London. There is a growing interest in amyloidosis, mainly related to improved diagnosis and introduction of disease-modifying drugs. The authors assess prescription patterns, dosages, discontinuation rates and association with prognosis of conventional HF medications in patients with transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis, or ATTRCA. A retrospective analysis of all consecutive patients diagnosed with ATTRCA at the National Amyloidosis Centre between the year 2000 and 2022 identified 2,371 patients with ATTRCA. Prescription of HF medications was greater among patients with a more severe cardiac phenotype, comprising beta blockers in 55%, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, or ACIS, stroke angiotensin II receptor blockers, or ARBs, in 57%, and mineral ocorticoid receptor antagonists, or MRAs, in 39% of cases. During a median follow-up of 27.8 months, 22% had beta blockers discontinued, and 33% had ACE-IS stroke ARBs discontinued. In contrast, only 7.5% had MRAs discontinued. A propensity score-matched analysis demonstrated that treatment with MRAs was independently associated with a reduced risk of mortality in the overall population, hazard ratio or HR 0.77, P being less than 0.001, and in a pre-specified subgroup of patients with a left ventricular ejection fraction, or LVEF, greater than 40%, HR 0.75, P equaling 0.002. Treatment with low-dose beta blockers was independently associated with a reduced risk of mortality in a pre-specified subgroup of patients with an LVEF less than or equal to 40%, HR 0.61, P equaling 0.002. No convincing differences were found for treatment with ACE-IS stroke ARBs. The authors conclude that conventional HF medications are currently not widely prescribed in ATTRCA, and that those who receive these medications have more severe cardiac disease. Beta blockers or ACIS stroke ARBs are often discontinued, but low-dose beta blockers are associated with reduced risk of mortality in patients with an LVEF less than or equal to 40%. In contrast, MRAs are rarely discontinued and are associated with reduced risk of mortality in the overall population. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Richard Cheng from the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington, USA and Sarah Cuddy from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. 
The authors note that to fully understand the role of neurohormonal or NH blockade in ATTRCA, we need to consider what we can do to move the field forward. Most importantly, this study serves as a call to action regarding the need for a randomized clinical trial of NH blockade in patients with ATTRCA. Benefit may not be a one-size-fits-all, and we will need to be selective about who we treat. The current study suggests that benefit is most likely in those with LVEF less than or equal to 40% with beta blockers, and in all comers with MRAs. Additionally, if the benefit is from NH blockade, perhaps there will be a signal of benefit with low-dose ACE-IS stroke ARBs. In the interim, the authors recommend consideration of pragmatic trials with close collaboration between amyloid centers of expertise worldwide to expand the sample size and include a more diverse cohort. Such collaborations will be needed not only to evaluate conventional HF therapies, but also to assess more novel therapies that may have potential benefit in ATTRCA, such as sodium glucose cotransporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitors, and address the unmet needs in the management of CA. Telemonitoring modalities in HF have been proposed as being essential for future organisation and transition of HF care. However, efficacy has not been proven. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Telemonitoring for Heart Failure – A Meta-Analysis Niels Scholter and colleagues from the University Medical Center Rotterdam in the Netherlands provide a comprehensive meta-analysis of studies on home telemonitoring systems, or HTMS in HF, and the effect on clinical outcomes. A systematic literature search was performed in four bibliographic databases, including randomized trials and observational studies that were published during January 1996 to July 2022. A random effects meta-analysis was carried out comparing HTMS with standard of care. All-cause mortality, first HF hospitalization, and total HF hospitalizations were evaluated as study endpoints. 65 non-invasive HTMS studies and 27 invasive HTMS studies enrolled 36,549 HF patients with a mean follow-up of 11.5 months. In patients using HTMS compared with standard of care, a significant 16% reduction in all-cause mortality was observed, pooled odds ratio, or OR, 0.84, as well as a significant 19% reduction in first hospitalization, OR, 0.81, and a 15% reduction in total HF hospitalizations pooled incident rate ratio 0.85. Scholter et al. conclude that these results are an advocacy for the use of HTMS in HF patients to reduce all-cause mortality and HF-related hospitalizations. Still, the methods of HTMS remain diverse, so future research should strive to standardize modes of effective HTMS the contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Friedrich Kuhlhoer and Gerhard Hendricks from the Deutsches Herzzentrum der Charité DHZC in Berlin, Germany. 
The authors note that the results of the primary endpoint of the 73 telemedicine randomized control trials included in the meta-analysis are exceedingly heterogeneous. There are four main reasons that may help to explain the heterogeneity of the study outcomes in the primary study endpoints of telemonitoring studies. 1. Communication pathways. In contrast to drugs that act directly on the pathogenesis of the disease, e.g. via receptor blockade, telemonitoring is a digital care intervention whose effects are strongly influenced by communication processes and interactions between the caregiver and patient. 2. Patient selection. Of all HF patients, only certain subpopulations may benefit from telemonitoring. 3. Technology. The telemedical sensor technologies used differ significantly with respect to the type of signal obtained remotely and the usefulness of the signal to guide stroke-improved therapy. 4. Time to intervention. One critical factor for the clinical effectiveness of telemonitoring to affect the endpoints of hospitalization and death in HF is the speed at which transmitted diagnostic information is translated into medical action by the caregiver. Glyphalosins play a key role in the treatment of HF. In another fast-track clinical research article entitled Dapaglyphalosin and Diuretic Utilization in Heart Failure with Mildly Reduced or Preserved Ejection Fraction, the DELIVER trial. Safia Chatur and colleagues from the Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, USA, indicate that dapaglyphalosin reduces the combined risk of worsening HF or cardiovascular death among patients with HF with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction. In this pre-specified analysis of the dapaglyphalosin evaluation to improve the lives of patients with preserved ejection fraction heart failure, or DELIVER, trial, the safety and efficacy of dapaglyphalosin according to background diuretic therapy and the influence of dapaglyphalosin on longitudinal diuretic use were evaluated. The effects of dapaglyphalosin versus placebo were assessed in the following subgroups. No diuretic, non-loop diuretic and loop diuretic furosemide equivalent doses of less than 40, 40 and greater than 40 mg. Of the 6,263 randomized patients, 10.9% were on no diuretic, 12.3% were on non-loop diuretic, and 76.8% were on loop diuretic at baseline. Treatment benefits of dapaglyphalosin on the primary composite outcome were consistent by diuretic use categories, P interaction equaling 0.64, or loop diuretic dose, P-interaction equaling 0.57. Serious adverse events were similar between dapaglyphalosin and placebo arms, irrespective of diuretic use or dosing. Dapaglyphalosin reduced new initiation of loop diuretics by 32%, HR 0.68, P being less than 0.001, but did not influence discontinuations stroke disruptions. HR 0.98, P equaling 0.83 during follow-up. First sustained loop diuretic dose increases were less frequent, and sustained dose decreases were more frequent in patients treated with dapaglyphalosin. Net difference of minus 6.5%, P 
P being less than 0.001. The mean dose of loop diuretic increased over time in the placebo arm. A longitudinal increase that was significantly attenuated with treatment with dapagliflozin. Placebo corrected treatment effect of minus 2.5 mg per year, P being less than 0.001. The authors conclude that in patients with HF with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction, the clinical benefits of dapagliflozin relative to placebo were consistent across a wide range of diuretic categories and doses with a similar safety profile. Treatment with dapagliflozin significantly reduced new loop diuretic requirement over time. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Barry Bulog from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, USA and Jeffrey Testani from the Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, USA. The authors note that the proximal tubular location of SGLT2 probably drives the paradox observed in trials such as DELIVER, where a diuretic stroke diuretic sparing effect is seen without the downsides of a drug that induces a diuretic stroke diuretic sparing effect. It is as if the drug is working by making the kidney operate more normally in handling sodium, rather than the brute force addition of a second diuretic such as thiazide. Blocking a large amount of sodium reabsorption in the proximal nephron probably provides this opportunity by 1. Increasing delivery of salt-rich fluids to salt-sensing elements spanning the entire remainder of the nephron and 2. Having the entire remainder of the nephron available to compensate and reabsorb this salty fluid, if required. For example, enhanced sodium chloride delivery to the macula densa results in a relative suppression of renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system activation and other compensatory mechanisms. But this salt and fluid then traverse the remaining nephron segments to undergo compensatory reabsorption as needed, avoiding overdiuresis. Strong HF showed that rapid uptitration of guideline recommended medical therapy, or GRMT, in a high-intensity care, or HIC, strategy was associated with better outcomes compared with usual care in patients hospitalized with acute HF. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled NT Pro-BNP and High-Intensity Care for Acute Heart Failure, the Strong HF Trial, Mariana Admo and colleagues from the University of Brescia in Italy assess the role of N-terminal probrain natriuretic peptide, or NT-pro-BNP, at baseline and its changes early during uptitration. A total of 1,077 patients hospitalized for acute HF and with a greater than 10% NT-pro-BNP decrease from screening, i.e. admission, to randomization, i.e. pre-discharge, were included. Patients receiving HIC were stratified by further NT-pro-BNP changes from randomization to one week later as decreased, greater than or equal to 30%, stable, less than 30%, decreased to less than or equal to 10% increase, or increased, greater than 10%. The primary endpoint was 180-day HF readmission or death. The benefit of HIC versus usual care 
was independent of baseline NT-PRO BMP. Patients in the HIC group with stable or increased NT-PRO BMP were older with more severe acute HF and worse renal and liver function. A protocol, patients with increased NT-ProBMP received more diuretics and were up-titrated more slowly during the first weeks after discharge. However, by six months, they reached 70.4% optimal GRMT doses compared with 80.3% for those with an NT-ProBNP decrease. As a result, the primary endpoint at 60 and 90 days occurred in 8.3% and 11.1% of patients with increased NT-ProBNP versus 2.2% and 4% in those with decreased NT-ProBNP, P equaling 0.039 and P equaling 0.045 respectively. However, no difference in outcome was found at 180 days. 13.5% versus 13.2%, P equaling 0.93. The authors conclude that among patients with acute HF enrolled in strong HF, HIC reduced 180-day HF readmission or death regardless of baseline NT-ProBNP. GRMT uptitration early post-discharge utilizing increased NT-ProBNP as guidance to increase diuretic therapy and reduce the GRMT uptitration rate, resulted in the same 180-day outcomes regardless of early post-discharge NT-ProBNP change. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Antoni Bayaskenis from the Université Hospital Germans Trias y Pugiol in Badalona, Spain, and Domenico Pascual Figal from the Instituto de Salud Carlos Trias in Madrid, Spain. The authors highlight that it's crucial to ensure that patients with HF receive the best possible medical treatment, making the transition period stronger by monitoring NT-ProBNP can give clinicians the confidence they need to titrate GDMT at the appropriate pace for each patient. In a fast-track Congress article entitled Dapaglyphosin versus Metolazone in Heart Failure Resistant to Loop Diuretics, Su Ern Yo and colleagues from the University of Glasgow in the United Kingdom examined the decongestive effect of the SGLT2 inhibitor dapaglyphosin compared with the thiazide-like diuretic metolazone in patients hospitalized for HF and resistant to treatment with intravenous furosemide. The authors undertook a multi-center, open-label, randomized, active comparator trial. Patients were randomized to dapaglyphosin 10 mg once daily or metolazone 5 to 10 mg once daily for a three-day treatment period, with follow-up for primary and secondary endpoints until day 5, 96 hours. The primary endpoint was diuretic effect, assessed by changes in weight, kilograms. Secondary endpoints included change in pulmonary congestion, lung ultrasound, loop diuretic efficiency, weight change per 40 mg of furosemide, and a volume assessment score. A total of 61 patients were randomized. The mean cumulative dose of furosemide at 96 hours was 976 mg in the dapaglyphosin group 
and 704 mg in patients assigned to metolazone. The mean decrease in weight at 96 hours was 3.0 kg with dapagliflozin compared with 3.6 kg with metolazone, P equaling 0.11. Loop diuretic efficiency was similar with dapagliflozin and with metolazone. Changes in pulmonary congestion and volume assessment score were similar between treatments. Decreases in plasma sodium and potassium and increases in urea and creatinine were smaller with dapagliflozin than with metolazone. Serious adverse events were similar between treatments. The authors conclude that in patients with HF and loop diuretic resistance, dapagliflozin was not more effective at relieving congestion than metolazone. Patients assigned to dapagliflozin received a larger cumulative dose of furosemide but experienced less biochemical upset than those assigned to metolazone. The contribution is accompanied by Ned Troil, by Pieter Martins from the Cleveland Clinic in New York City, USA. Martins notes that this trial does seem to challenge the current dogma that thiocytes are the superior agents as first add-on choice on top of loop diuretics, rejuvenating the question of how to use combinational diuretics best. With SGLT2 inhibitors being a well-established disease-modifying therapy that will probably be prescribed and continued throughout the AHF admission, the incremental diuretic effects of SGLT2 inhibitors become a moot point, as they should be prescribed regardless of the effects on diuretic responsiveness. Different diuretics may have different goals. Azetazolamide as an upfront agent lowers the loop diuretic threshold to invoke naturesis with several theoretical mechanisms by which it can prevent the development of loop diuretic resistance. Thiocytes can treat diuretic resistance if loop diuretics reach a ceiling dose, but come at the cost of metabolic perpetuations. Three quarters of a century after the discovery of azetazolamide, loop diuretics and thiocytes, we're beginning to understand how to appropriately use these agents in combination to prevent and treat diuretic resistance in patients with acute HF. Sacubitril stroke valsartan play a key role in the treatment of HF. The Paraglide HF trial demonstrated reductions in natriuretic peptides with sacubitril valsartan compared with valsartan in patients with HF with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction, who had a worsening HF event but was not adequately powered to examine clinical outcomes. In a Fast Track Congress article entitled Sacubitril Stroke Valsartin in Heart Failure with Mildly Reduced or Preserved Ejection Fraction, a pre-specified participant-level pooled analysis of Paraglide HF and Paragon HF. Muthia Vaduganathan and colleagues from Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, USA, point out that Paragon HF included a subset of Paraglide HF-like patients who were recently hospitalized for HF. Participant-level data from Paraglide HF and Paragon HF were pooled to better estimate the efficacy and safety of sacubitral stroke valsartan in reducing cardiovascular and renal events in HF with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction. 
Both Paraglide HF and Paragon HF were multi-center, double-blind, randomized, active control trials of sacubitril stroke valsartin versus valsartin in patients with HF with mildly reduced or preserved LVEF, greater than 40% in Paraglide HF and greater than or equal to 45% in Paragon HF. In the pre-specified primary analysis, the authors pooled participants in Paraglide HF, all of whom were enrolled during or within 30 days of a worsening HF event, with a Paraglide-like subset of Paragon HF, those hospitalized with HF within 30 days. The authors also pooled the entire Paraglide HF and Paragon HF populations for a broader context. The primary endpoint for this analysis was the composite of total worsening HF events, including first and recurrent HF hospitalizations and urgent visits, and cardiovascular death. The second endpoint was the pre-specified renal composite endpoint for both studies, greater than or equal to 50% decline in estimated glomerular filtration rate from baseline, end-stage renal disease, or renal death. Compared with valsartin, sacubitral stroke valsartin significantly reduced total worsening HF events and cardiovascular death, both in the primary pooled analysis of participants with recent worsening HF, N equaling 1,088, rate ratio, or RR, 0.78, P equaling 0.042, and in the pooled analysis of all participants, N equaling 5,262, RR 0.86, P equaling 0.027. In the pooled analysis of all participants, first nominal statistical significance was reached by day 9 after randomization, and treatment benefits were larger in those with LVEF less than or equal to 60%, RR 0.78, compared with those with LVEF greater than 60%, RR 1.09, the interaction equaling 0.021. Sacubitral valsartin was also associated with lower rates of the renal composite endpoint in the primary pooled analysis, HR 0.67, P equaling 0.080, and the pooled analysis of all participants, HR 0.60, P equaling 0.002. The authors conclude that in pooled analysis of Paraglide HF and Paragon HF, sacubitral stroke valsartin reduced cardiovascular and renal events among patients with HF with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction. These data provide support for the use of sacubitral stroke valsartin in patients with HF with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction, particularly among those with an LVEF below normal regardless of care setting. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Stephen Green from Duke Clinical Research Institute in Durham, North Carolina, USA, and Greg Fonero from the University of California, Los Angeles Medical Center. The authors conclude that although the totality of scientific evidence supports sacubitral stroke valsartin as having incremental efficacy over valsartin, in a broad population of patients with HF and ejection fraction greater than 40%, the current analysis from Vadoganathan et al. informs the patient phenotype where the value of the therapy will be highest at the current time.
Episodes of recent worsening HF, or WHF, are consistent markers of disease progression associated with substantial risk of death, recurrent hospitalisation, and enormous healthcare expenditure. While one can certainly argue that patients with HF are high risk across the spectrum and should be treated with a sense of urgency, patients with WHF are the extreme and where targeted implementation efforts could prevent substantial numbers of deaths and hospitalizations. An SGLT2 inhibitor is the foundational evidence-based therapy for all eligible patients with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction, including those with or without a recent WHF event. But where do we place sacubitral stroke valsartin in the treatment paradigm? While use of sacubitral stroke valsartin can be routinely considered among all eligible patients with HF and ejection fraction 41 to 60%, it can be particularly targeted and prioritized among those with both ejection fraction 41 to 60% and recent WHF. In a clinical research article entitled Stroke in Patients with Heart Failure and Reduced or Preserved Ejection Fraction, Ming-Ming Yang and colleagues from the University of Glasgow remind us that stroke is an important problem in patients with HF, but the intersection between the two conditions is poorly studied across the range of ejection fraction. The prevalence of history of stroke and related outcomes were investigated in patients with HF in an individual patient meta-analysis of seven clinical trials, enrolling patients with HF with reduced or preserved ejection fraction. Of the 20,159 patients with reduced ejection fraction, 8.3% had a history of stroke, and of the 13,252 patients with preserved ejection fraction, 9.7% had a history of stroke. Regardless of ejection fraction, patients with a history of stroke had more vascular comorbidities and worse HF. Among those with reduced ejection fraction, the incidence of the composite of cardiovascular death, HF hospitalization, stroke, or myocardial infarction was 18.23 per 100 person years in those with prior stroke versus 13.12 in those without, HR 1.37, P being less than 0.001. The corresponding rates in patients with preserved ejection fraction were 14.16 and 9.37. HR 1.49, P being less than 0.001. Each component of the composite was more frequent in patients with stroke history, and the risk of future stroke was doubled in patients with prior stroke. Among patients with prior stroke, 30% with concomitant atrial fibrillation were not anticoagulated, and 29% with arterial disease were not taking statins. The authors conclude that HF patients with a history of stroke are at high risk of subsequent cardiovascular events, and targeting underutilization of guideline-recommended treatments might be a way to improve outcomes in this high-risk population. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Jens Vich and Scott Kuzner from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. The authors point out that the findings by Yang et al., not only go against the old paradigm that assumes a higher stroke risk in patients with HF with reduced ejection fraction, 
by suggesting that ejection fraction may be an overrated parameter to estimate the risk of stroke in HF, but they also implicitly undermine our presumptions about the role of HF in stroke pathogenesis. Perhaps HF with reduced or preserved ejection fraction both may link to stroke through common risk factor burden rather than as a direct source of embolism. Future prospective studies will hopefully help answer the question of whether secondary stroke prevention can be tailored to the underlying cardiac pathology. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In a commentary entitled, A Call for Harmonized Surveillance Recommendations in Cardio-Oncology, Jan Leering from the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands and Matthew Erhard from St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, USA, comment on the 2022 ESC Guidelines on Cardio-Oncology developed in collaboration with the European Haematology Association, or EHA, the European Society of Therapeutic Radiology and Oncology, or ESTRO, and the International Cardio-Oncology Society, or ICOS, developed by the Task Force on Cardio-Oncology of the European Society of Cardiology, or ESC. On behalf of the Guideline Committee, Teresa Lopez-Fernandez and Alexander Leon respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.